All right, so uh, we want to get on to the message for today. Let me just remind us where we've been. We just finished four weeks of a series called Kill the Spider. Uh, kill the spider of success, kill the spider of people-pleasing, kill the spider of materialism, and kill the spider of anger. That's where we've been. And in three weeks, we're going to be getting into what's called the wisdom literature of Scripture. Maybe you know, in the Old Testament, there are five books known as wisdom literature. There is the book of Job, uh, some of the Psalms in the book of Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then Song of Songs. And we're going to be digging into some of those and, and hopefully are arriving at what does it look like to live a life of wisdom? And what does it look like to live a life of folly? And beware of that middle road, because by default, you end up on the road to folly. So how do we get onto that road of wisdom? We're going to be taking a look at that. But for today and next week, we're going to be looking at the ordinances of the church. What I mean by that is Jesus ordained or commanded two things that the church should do between now and when he comes again. Next week, we're looking at baptism. Baptism is a physical image of what happens inwardly. Um, we're going to be talking about baptism. We'll actually see these baptisms. And what people will be saying when they're baptized is, I have died to my sins with Christ, raised to new life with Christ. It's a public statement of, I'm here to follow Jesus. So that's going to be really cool next week. Today, we're talking about communion, where we remember the Lord's death on the cross. In a little while, we'll come to the tables. It's called the, the table of remembrance, the Lord's supper, the Lord's table, communion. We do that together. Now, to gradually, slowly lead us to that point, I want to walk us through a couple of stories, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. The one from the Old Testament is a rather obscure story, rather unknown. I heard somebody teach on it years ago, and it's become one of my favorite stories, and I've never really gotten to teach on it, so today I will tell you a little bit about this guy by the name of Mephibosheth, one of the reasons I haven't taught it, because it's so hard to say. Say that three times, Mephibosheth. Maybe they just called him Bo. I don't know. Somebody said, somebody said it sounds like a skin disease. It's not. It's a young man whose story you'll find in 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. Now, before we get into his story in 2 Samuel, I need to give you a little backstory, which begins in 1 Samuel. All right? So let me give you some of that. There's a lot, but I'm going to summarize it, boil it down. The first king of Israel was King Saul. He was a big, tall, strapping guy who had a son named Jonathan. And rightfully, Jonathan would become the next king in line. But God had other plans. Even while Saul was king, God gave the nod to a young, ruddy shepherd boy named David to become the next king. Now, <clears throat> David was an amazing guy. He killed Goliath. He did these, all these other amazing things. He was so amazing and so um, amazed were people with him that King Saul became outrageously jealous of David to the point where 
he looked for opportunities to have David killed. But interestingly, David and King Saul's son, Jonathan, Jonathan and David became BFFs. They were like blood brothers. And Jonathan saw what was going on. He saw that his dad was trying to kill David. And so he made a pledge, a vow, a promise, an oath to David. I will not let this happen. I will go out of my way to keep my dad from killing you. But David, in return, would you make an oath to me, a vow to me? And this is where we pick up the story. And may you, David, treat me, Jonathan, with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, treat my family with this faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a solemn pact with David, saying, May the Lord destroy, destroy all your enemies. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his vow of friendship again, for Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. See the words that are highlighted there, faithful love. That's a very special Hebrew word. Now, there are a lot of words that describe God in the Bible, but this would be the word that is at the very top, the supreme word, the Hebrew word, not that you need to memorize this, but it's hesed, and it means loyal love, loving kindness, mercy, grace. You'll find it throughout the Old Testament, this word hesed. Like, for example, in Psalm 63, Lord, your, your love is better than life itself. Or some of you know the, the verse in Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, where it says, God, what do you require of us but to do justly, to walk humbly, but right in the middle, to love mercy, to love what God loves, to, way, to love the way God loves. Um, this idea of vowing to love with a loyal type of love. Uh, over the years, I've done performed many, many weddings. The last couple of years, I haven't performed a wedding at all. This year, I have three weddings, and one of them is our son's. He's getting married. I get to have a part in that. And whenever I meet with a couple and talk through their wedding itself, I help them to know that, hey, you really don't need anything in your wedding except for one thing. In fact, everything else in your wedding may go wrong. We'll try to avoid that. But the one thing that you must have are your vows. Because it's your vows, that's where you say, I will love you no matter what. That's where you say that, that you don't have to do anything to earn my love. I'll just love you, period. I won't love you because, when, or if, just period. Unconditional love, no matter what. A something-for-nothing kind of love. That's the kind of vow that David was making to Jonathan and his family. That kind of loyal love. So, the story continues. We come to the end of 1 Samuel. And there's this fierce battle between Israel and the Philistines, their arch enemies. And Saul, King Saul, falls on his own sword. He takes his own life. And some believe he took his own life because he thought that if he got taken alive by the Philistines, he would be tortured alive. And his son Jonathan also gets killed in the battle. That's the end of 1 Samuel. We come into 2 Samuel, and when we come to chapter 4, we learn something interesting. It's interesting that it's, it's inserted just parenthetically because it's an important part of the broader narrative. But what we learn is that Jonathan leaves behind a five-year-old son by the name of Mephibosheth. And this is what it says. 
Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him and he became crippled. That's not good news. He had just lost his grandfather. He had just lost his father. And now he loses the use of his feet. He is crippled. Now, back in those days, that's bad news. I mentioned just in a couple weeks, I'm going with a team to Burundi, a very undeveloped nation. Now, if we were taking a short-term team to inner-city Chicago or inner-city Cleveland, I would have no problem taking someone with a crippling disability. But I would not take someone with a crippling disability to a place like Burundi or any other developed nation where they aren't anywhere near the advancements that we've experienced in the U.S. Not that it's perfect here in the U.S., but nothing like what we have here. And that's the way it was back then. He's lost the use of his mobility. In an agrarian society, who would grow his crops? Like in many nations around the world, if you have a disability like that, you're considered a second-class citizen. And what about the people who would walk by and say or at least think, what what did you do to invite a curse like that into your life? That was bad news. Well, Mephibosheth grows up. But King David, who is now King David, on the throne, King David, knows nothing about Mephibosheth. And things are going very well for David. In fact, you come to 2 Samuel chapter 8, and it says this, David did everything well. Now, this is before he gets into Bathsheba and Uriah and all that sort of thing. It says, he did everything well. He conquers Jerusalem. He brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He defeats the archenemy, the Philistines. Everything is going great. He's hitting on all cylinders. But then something interesting. David stops and he remembers. And this is what he says. One day David asked, Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? There's that word. He remembers the vow of loyal love and mercy and grace that he wants to show to someone in Jonathan's family. And this is the reply. He summoned a man named Ziba who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am Ziba, replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's, here's our word, God's kindness to them. And Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him. At the home of Machir, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And when he, Mephibosheth, came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Let me just stop there for a moment. What was that like? What was that like? What was it like when, when the king's people came to Mephibosheth's door? Because everyone back then knew that the incoming king often did away with any of the relatives from the previous king. Either had them shipped far away or had them killed. 
Was that going through his mind? Or when he showed up in front of David, did he think, does the king even know that I have no use of my feet? That I will be no help here? I can't be, I will need, I will need more help than I can be helpful. The story continues. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show you kindness, loyal love, mercy, grace to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog? A dead dog like me. And then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Now, that's not quite the end of the chapter. But at the very end of the chapter, verse 13, like the capstone words of this entire story, and then we're finished with the story of Mephibosheth. And this is what it says. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. Just try to take in those words. Just like it is today in a Jewish household, back in those days, When you ate at a table, when you ate in somebody's home at a table, it was like the host saying to you, you are now one of us. Now, Mephibosheth didn't have texting ability. But if he had texting ability, I think he would have texted out, OMG, this just happened. He would have taken a selfie with him at the table and this feast with the king in the background saying, this just happened. I bring nothing to the table except my crippled feet. I deserve none of this. I've earned none of this. I can repay none of this. This is so one-sided. It's ridiculous. But that is the nature of grace. That's the nature of mercy. That's the nature of God's love. And in this story, we see in David's life represented the character of God, which now points us a thousand years later when we see the character of God perfectly, entirely, completely represented in the person of Jesus. I told you we look at a story in the New Testament. This is a much shorter story. But I love this story because it's Jesus sitting at, again, a table, not with one unlikely, but with a whole bunch of unlikelies. Maybe you know the story. It's one of my favorites of all time. It goes like this. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. I love this story. Now there's more to it, but let's just... Tax collectors and sinners. Isn't it interesting? You have the category of sinners... And then you have tax collectors. They're in a whole category by themselves. And the reason the people back then hated the tax collectors is because these were, and Matthew was one of them, 
These were Jewish guys who were collecting tax for Rome. That was really looked down on. Plus, they would skim off the top and fill their pockets. So tax collectors and disreputable sinners. And why they're called sinners, we don't know. It's a collective, collective term for those who were notoriously irreligious. These people at the table with Jesus, they didn't have crippled feet. They had crippled lives. And there Jesus is with them. With the down, he spent more time with the down and outers than with the up and outers. And in those days, in the days of Jesus, it wasn't like sitting at a table like you and I will later on today with our knees under the table. It was a floor table, and they would lean on one elbow with their legs out from behind them, and they would eat like this. And it wasn't like a, you know, maybe a 45-minute thing around the table like you and I will do later on. This was an extended thing. And the people around the table, it was, a, it was like an experience together with friends. It was, it was a circle of fellowship. And here's Jesus with these, why? Why was he there? Why, why was Jesus hanging out with these losers? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the dregs of the barrel, the, the, the lowest class in society, the, the morally crippled. Why? And that's the question the religious onlookers had. This is what they asked. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such, they're not mincing words, or mincing words, scum. Now that, that's not the actual word in the original language. It says tax collectors and sinners. But the translators of the Bible that we use, they're trying to help us understand exactly what they were trying to communicate. Scum. And this is what Jesus says. When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. And then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, and there's our word. I want you to show mercy, not, others, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. It's, it's like Jesus is looking at these religious guys who, who know the Bible inside out. Have you been watching Jeopardy lately? Oh my goodness, I love Jeopardy. I'm not very good at it, but it's fun to watch these people who know so much. There's a guy on there now, I don't know if he's broken the record yet, 30-day record, two million some dollars that he's made on Jeopardy. I'm thinking, I've got to get really smart really fast and become part of Jeopardy. I mean, I'm not, but I watch this guy, I think, I can't believe he even knows this. Is somebody speaking into his ear? Is he cheating in some way? And then I think, who even needs to know that much stuff? But he does. He's amazingly smart. Now you're all going to watch Jeopardy this week. It's, it's impressive. But, but Jesus is talking to these religious leaders who really know the Bible, many of the books of the Old Testament, inside out, by memory. And yet he's saying to them, don't you get it? Don't you get it? What, don't you get God's heart? That, that God wants to show mercy. God loves sinners. God loves to show off his grace. And whether you have crippled feet or a crippled life or a crippled soul, a crippled heart, a crippled background, a checkered past, there is room at the table for you. Not because you've earned or deserved it, but because of God's grace and mercy, his hesed kind of love. I love those two table stories. 
I would love to hear your story. I'll give you a slice of mine, not that you asked, but since I'm talking, I'll go ahead. Just the other day, my good friend Jim and I took our wives out for a sandwich, and, and then we decided to tour around Huron. That's where Jim and I grew up. It doesn't take very long to tour around Huron. So we went and got ice cream, you know, and then we drove through this one neighborhood where my friend Jim grew up, and we parked the car down by the lake on a road that parallels the beach. And we stopped the car right there. I had never done this before with my wife, and Jim's wife was in the car, and so we told them the story of what happened when Jim and I were around 20 years old, 20, just a couple years ago. <laughs> and... And we, we, told, we told the story of what happened on a November night when we stopped the car there and he told me that he had just recently decided to follow Jesus. I didn't even know what that meant. But as he began to share with me how much God loved me and how much God wanted to forgive me, if I would just turn and follow Jesus, that would happen and God would give me new life. And it just began to make sense to me. I had learned about Jesus all my life growing up in church, but I never understood that I needed to actually surrender my life to Christ. And so I did. I did. And that's where my spiritual journey began. And as I began to read the Bible, I eventually came across these words of Peter in his first letter that says something like this, that Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God and then eventually I began to realize to bring us to God, to bring us to God's table, to bring us into fellowship with God, to bring us into a relationship with God. And as you look through the Bible, you will see that, that from the beginning to the end, there is the theme of the table. Whether you're talking about Passover or David and Mephibosheth or Jesus and the tax collectors and sinners or the Lord's Supper table and there are other tables in between and all of them point eventually, eventually to that day when all of God's people from every tribe, nation, and language around the world, we will be gathered with God around his table of fellowship, having a great feast with great joy, and all of that is possible because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and my sins. He took it onto himself so that we would not have to die, but we could have life and be forgiven so that we could have that space at the table. The night before Jesus died on the cross, he had a last supper with his followers. And at that last supper, he, he took some bread and he broke it. And he said, let this bread represent my body, which is given for you. And then he took a cup and he said, this cup poured out represents my blood, which is shed for you. Whenever you are together, do this to remember what I've done for you. Nothing you have earned, nothing you have deserved. It is a gift. And this has made available to you a space at the Lord's table. Now, I have one more passage to show you. Another favorite. Just one more. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. You see what it says. We can't. Can't take credit. 
When we come to the table of remembrance in just a few moments, come as Mephibosheth. I haven't earned anything. I don't deserve this. I can't repay anything. This is, this is all one-sided. It's because of God's grace. Come as the tax collectors and sinners with a broken spirit in need of God. Come. Come with a crippled heart, with a crippled past. But come. There's a, there's a place for you at God's table. I come to this church not because I have my act together. I come to this church not because I have spiritually arrived. I don't come to this church because I'm a pastor. I come to this church with you because I am a loved sinner with my own crippledness and my own need for God's grace and mercy in my life. It's in Christ that we find wholeness. Between this day and that day, Jesus says, remember me. And that's what we're about to do.